What's happening, guys? Welcome to the fourth episode of the Mentality Podcast. I've some great guests on already, and um, this is a brilliant one, an absolutely brilliant one. I'm doing the intro a few days after to just trying to digest all the stuff that I took in and kind of think what the the biggest messages that came from the podcast. And it's with Damien Hughes. Damien actually came in uh, to the England Rugby League camp, um, one of our meetings, and spoke to us all and talked us through quite an interesting topic um, for how human beings operate, why we find ourselves in certain situations, whether that's on a rugby field or whether that is actually um, dealing with stuff in everyday life, good and bad. Um, and he maps out quite quite a lot of topics in that and why it's good to, to look at that. And and, and there's, there's quite a few little messages that, that Damien dropped in um, the idea of routines, how they can help you, negative self-talk, um, how we operate and and how we operate through the ego. But one of the main messages that, that I got um, was the idea of thinking about thinking. That came up quite a lot and it's, it's one of Damien's big messages. Um, it's the idea of stepping back and, and taking an objective look at what you're doing, what you're thinking, why you're thinking that and, and also how it helps you to, to learn and improve and, and to get better. Damien's wrote a vast amount of books um, that have got some incredible testimonials about him. Testimonials, I should say. Rush that, didn't I? Um, he's wrote The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset, What Sport Can Teach is About Great Leadership. Um, that's got a testimonial from Sir Ian McGeekin. Um, he's wrote How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson. Stuart Lancaster testimonial. He's wrote How to Change Absolutely Anything. Liquid Thinking, which is his main main book, I think, you know, coming into the idea of what is a liquid thinker, the opposite of solid, solid thinking, which we will cover in the podcast. Change Inspiration, A Drop of Liquid Thinking, personalized book survival guide to change um and there's some awesome stories that we actually talk about and what what damien brings to the to the table in this podcast um i think is an incredibly interesting guy i got a lot from speaking to him actually and i think i will continue to speak to him further down the line um some of the testimonials are from people like richard branson Jamie Peacock, Johnny Wilkinson, Wayne Bennett, uh, Nobby Styles, MBE, uh, the list goes on. The guy is, is is quite inspirational what he does, and he helps lead in sport, but also is a keynote speaker. Um, he speaks to businesses and how he can transfer what he's learned through sport, working with these people into business situations so he's helped me a lot just from speaking through this podcast i think it's about 35 minutes in is where he outlines how we operate and the psychology of how we operate as human beings and, and he splits it up into three main groups for the brain um and it's it's an incredible way to look at how how we actually do uh, navigate our way through life and it helped me quite a lot and, and everyone was stuck to the chair listening at the england meeting so um, so that's there for 35 minutes in if you guys need to listen to that and without further ado jump in and see what Damien's got to say I think it'd be it'd be awesome to find out just in terms of where your background is Damien and, and how you've become so interested in, in the like sports yeah. psychology side of things and how that's helping people with um, business and, and all sorts of 
characteristics where what, what's needed to be a leader and I just love to find out where your interest has, has, has yeah. come from and, and where your background is too. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got um, I've got a bit of an unusual background, I suppose, Stevie, that uh, I grew up in boxing. So um, my dad was a elite boxing coach and ran his own boxing club in uh, in, in, in the city of Manchester. So, and he was doing that long before I was born. So I, I literally grew up in the club so you know um it 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 bring me down there and all sort of holidays and after school was just spent being around sort of elite uh athletes so that was where my real interest in sort of um elite sport i suppose uh started and then i was the, the my dad was adamant because he'd seen just how tough professional sport was that he wanted me to pursue an education at the same time that he wasn't keen on just on putting all my eggs in one basket when it came to sport. So um, he was pushing me through at school. Well, at, at the same time, I was doing all right at sport. So I did a bit of boxing and um, I did all right at football. And um, when I was about 15, I had what was almost a bit of a blessing and a curse that I got picked to play for um, uh, uh, England schoolboys. And it was brilliant because it was a real honour, but equally it was fantastic because it showed me that I was miles away from the standard that I needed to do because I was just exposed to a quality of player that I knew, like their natural talent was far above mine. And that was really good because it almost crystallised my thoughts that it wasn't about the playing that really interested me, it was more around the coaching side of it, which is what I did then. So I went and did my coaching badges in football and in boxing um, and started helping my dad with it. And then when I was there, I, 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 and I was carrying on with school as well. And then um, when I left school, I went and uh, worked as a football coach for a few years. Um, I was working initially for, it was a company called Bobby Charlton uh, Football Schools. And then they got bought out by Manchester United. So I found myself working there. And what really occurred to me was that it wasn't just about the technical skills. The one... Like the best coaches also had the understanding of how psychology works and how to get into people's heads. So I went to night school and did um, psychology um, to learn more around it to complement the coaching. And while I was there, I realised that what really interested me was uh, was organisational psychology, so how people work together in teams and cultures. So that really became an obsession. Uh, for want of a better word, which then took me down the pathway of, I worked in business for about seven years. So I left the coaching to go and sort of learn about how this works away from sport. So I worked um, in New York, I worked in London, and then worked out in South Africa uh, for a couple of big businesses, uh, looking at how do you create high-performing cultures. And then uh, about 14 years ago, I decided to go on my own so I went back, um, so I set up as a consultant. So I worked right across a whole range of different sectors. So I've worked in elite sport, working with coaches, talking about how, because what I found was, and I don't know if this is your experience, I think if somebody like me comes in to work with a team, I have no real credibility with the players. But when a coach stands in front of the players and delivers that message, players will always listen because he's the guy that puts them in the team or not. So my real interest is working with the coaches to give them the skills and to give them the ability to be able to understand psychology and especially organisational psychology 
to be able to deliver those messages and get the best out of players. So yeah. at the same time as doing that, I've done a few different books around these topics as well, where I've tried to sort of bring a lot of these experiences and a lot of the people that I've met and try to convey them so anybody else could pick them up and, and understand how they could use them. Yeah, so I guess you've, you've come to the stage now, you've done a lot of work with coaches and, and, and kind of creating that winning culture or that, that mindset behind the team. And and, yeah. and these books, and, and that I guess that's where liquid thinking comes in, um, is that is that kind of broadening it out to people and, um, and giving those the insights that you've had from working so closely across these winning cultures and, and kind of showing them what those traits are that, that, that you can teach them, really? Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, the idea of liquid thinking, so when I was trying to think of a name for my business, uh, I often say this is a multiple-choice quiz, that there's two uh, like there's two answers to it, and I'll leave you to guess which one's the, uh, the right one, was that I was... That I'd read a quote from a, a guy called Edward de Bono, who's a bit of a creativity guru, and he spoke about most of our problems that we come up against in life are that we have what he calls solid thinking, that we see the world just from one perspective. And if it, if it doesn't fit that one perspective, we often bang our heads against it. So I thought, what's the opposite of solid thinking? Well, liquid thinking is just having that flexibility of thinking to see the world from different angles. The second way I came up with the title was I was sat at the pub with my mate and we were trying to come up with a catchy title for a business. And uh, it was his idea as we were sat looking down at a pint. He said, why don't call it liquid thinking? So I've run that sometimes as a multiple choice quiz and say, I'll, I'll let you guess which is the more credible. One. Which is the fancier one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was the idea behind it. And then the books have been very much around trying to take all these learnings and write them in a way that people could pick them up and read them and not feel that they're being patronised or it's too technical or it gets too heavy. It's about trying to make it accessible and fun as well as interesting, I hope. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that. And um, I mean, just just on, on, on the side of um, kind of launching Mentality about a year and a half ago, um, I kind of launched myself into a bit of a like a self-discovery or, or, you know, year and a half worth yeah. of self-improvement because um, I think a lot of people, you know, myself is a big is a big example of this, is you can kind of go through life and just kind of think that yourself can can improve, improve your own self and it's kind of like trying to lift yourself up off the floor with your own shoelaces. You can only do so much with the own ideas that you have and your own perspective. Um, and and I kind of felt like I needed to go out and 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 build this kind of armory or like this kind of resilience to, to going back into a place where where it's pretty dull. You know, I, I was struggling a bit with injuries and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I felt like I needed to kind of take action and 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 do some learning on that and and some kind of discovery on and all these things you've spoke about. You know. That, that's that that kind of solid thinking coming up against the same problem i guess is i might have done my own kind of liquid thinking in a way kind of just trying to look at the injury or the the bit of a suffering that i had in a different kind of perspective and, and a different way to tackle that and, and that's why i brought mentality out and i guess that's why i'm i'm, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to you damien today um whether I'm speaking well, clearly, all, on, clearly or not with this, lip, <laughs> this daft lip of mine. No, 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 I mean, first of all, I would say that. I think it takes real courage uh, to do what you've done in terms of launching mentality. That I think it's 
you know, to have the courage to make yourself vulnerable, I think is 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 hugely humbling, but inspiring as well. That so, first of all, I mean, full marks to you for doing it. I think there's real credit deserves there because a lot of us maybe we're having problems like that and it's almost like that sort of the alpha approach that we don't talk about it we don't admit to it and i just think your example is incredible and hopefully it does you know even if there's just one person that listens to it that that takes some kind of inspiration from what you've done you know i think you deserve a huge amount of credit for it cheers damien um thanks very much for that i um I really appreciate what you're saying, and and I, I wonder, like that, that gets that that gets spoke about a lot. Actually, the the kind of the alpha male approach, you know, that kind of idea that there can't be anything wrong with them because you know they need to keep keep plugging on with what they're doing, and and no one's going to complain about what they're doing or how they feel. Um, I guess it's a good opportunity actually to to ask you. Um, yeah. Is there anything behind that? Do you know the reasons that that? Because I'm going to ask you eventually to to do that bit of a that map of how we operate as human beings and and kind of talk me through that because yeah. I really enjoyed that at the England meeting uh, two weeks ago. Um, but just yeah. in specific, is there anything behind that with how males find it harder to to talk about um, struggling, you know, harder than women, or is there anything behind that? Yeah, I think. I, 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 I think it's a brilliant question. I think there is a lot, and I think the biggest uh, barrier that I often see is it's almost the culture that we that, uh, that we raised in this idea, especially, and I see it in 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 lots of different aspects. But the idea of just making yourself vulnerable, you know, we sit with our leaders. The fact that people won't put their hands up and just say, like, think about our political leaders or our business leaders. If they just put their hand up and said, "I don't know." or when they've made a mistake, if they just come out and said, listen, I'm dead sorry, it was an error of judgment, you know, I think most people, there's been research that I've seen on that that say the level of trust that people will have in our political leaders goes up if they just came out and admitted, I've made a mistake or I don't know the answer to it. I just don't, I yeah, I just don't understand that. that. Why Why they can't just make, just, um, that's something massive like with, you know, the the, the recent election why they can't just admit they got it wrong. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. and, and and people are so, they're so focused on not giving anything away or, or, or being wrong or appearing wrong that almost it, it takes a, an element yeah. of trust away as, as um, from someone who's voting or from someone who needs to support you. Because we all know we get it wrong sometimes. We're just very um, scared to admit that. And and um, I'll let you follow, follow on that point. Sorry, it's something I thought quite a lot about. No, 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 not at all. No, but I think it's right, and I do, But I think that idea of admitting vulnerability takes real strength, and it's almost counterintuitive to admit that I've made a mistake or I've made a cock up. There's something very human about it, and I think in our culture, look at how people that are, that make mistakes get treated, that they often get demonised, or it almost becomes a part of their character that they're always known as that. You know. That's the guy that messed up. That's the guy that did that. So, I think our culture certainly doesn't help with this, with this willingness to, to do what you did and just say, you know what, I'm struggling here. I need some help. I need to look at it in a different way. So, the best way I, could, I, I advise anybody is to say, have a look at who's in your support group. You know, I see it like I'll give you a bit of a daft example that goes off on a tangent, but 
when people will come to me sometimes and talk about writing a book and say, oh, I'd love to write a book, I would say there's two things that often stop most people doing it. The first one is a bit to do with the writing where I often say that your first draft will always be rubbish. You know, there's a, uh, there's a phrase that they talk about in writing, they call it the shitty first draft. And the reason is, is because cause you've got this idea in your head of what the book would look like. And then when you first do it, it's rubbish. The first version is never going to be the last version. But the second thing is you need to have people around you that you really trust and also who love you enough to be honest with you. People that, so because most people that you give a draft of a book to, they go, oh, that's really good. And that's not the help you need. You need somebody that would say, that's okay, but you could do better or give you some really tangible feedback that you can do something with. And the reality is that I think most of us have at least three people in our lives, or I'd hope that we do, three people that care enough about us to give us that honest feedback. And I think a first step in terms of just admitting it is just to do it with people that you know you're going to be safe with, people that have got your best interests at heart but are not just going to blow smoke up your backside and tell you you're great even when you know you're not. And I think as a first step for anyone that might be listening or think about it, just identify one, two, or most three people that you feel would, as you know, would have your back at a time of crisis. Not that would say they would. People that just genuinely would have your back and have demonstrated it. And I think to go to them and just say, "I'm struggling here. I need a bit of help," is the first step for anyone that does need that help. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that it's almost like a safety net, isn't it? Like to to be able to be vulnerable or to, to I guess in a lot of people's eyes it's to, to fail in it, I guess, to to kind of just say that you, you need to take a step back and, and look at how you're feeling or whatever. Um, it's a big thing really to, to have people that will support you. And I know in my experience, um, I could speak to, to my family, um, my close family and, and also my mates um, about it, which was which was quite easy and um, an advantage for me really being able, being able to do it. Um, is there any kind of um, psychological things, Damien, from 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 doing your work? I know you, you're a professor. At, is it is it the University of Manchester that you actually professor? Uh, at? Manchester Met, yeah, yeah. MMU, yeah, Manchester um, Met. So I mean, obviously, you've done quite a lot of work into it. Is is there any kind of psychological differences or, or anything that you can you can kind of iron out? And just before I lead on to that awesome presentation you did <laughs> for that England, yeah, I, I mean. I sometimes talk about this with groups where, where where you ask people and say about how many of us are going to do things differently and a lot of people will say yes and then there's three things that always happen. So if you're going to do things differently, so a bit like take your example of, 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 of setting up mentality and doing that. So three things will happen and I know we've not spoke about this but so correct me if I'm wrong. When you first declare you're going to do something like this, some people will laugh at the idea at the idea that, like, what do you know about it? Or, you know, how is that relevant? The second thing is people will then tell you why. There's loads of things like that out there. You know, why would you be successful? And they'll oppose it and tell you all the reasons why you're likely to fail. Now, when it's successful, the third stage is everyone will say to you, I always knew it would be, uh, like, I always knew it would work, Stevie. And they will tell you that common sense is always common practice, but you always get those three stages. So, the three stages are what we call you get uh, ridicule, then you get opposition, and then you get acceptance, and it works in that order. Now, 
The ironic thing is, when you look at the things that human beings are most afraid of, spiders is always top of the list. But the second most common thing most people are afraid of is being laughed at. And yet the first stage of doing anything different is getting laughed at. So what most people will do is they'll go, oh, maybe it's a daft idea, and they get back in the box and keep doing what they've always done. So you get that solid thinking. So I think sometimes it's just about recognising where we are on the journey, that if people are laughing at you or people are telling you that you're on the wrong path, sometimes that's a good sign. When you come up against resistance like that, it's it's a sign that you're actually on the right path. And I think when we start to learn that, I think it can often help us make change happen a little bit easier for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's definitely something that um, I mean. I've come across. I've, 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 I guess I've consciously had to be aware of um, working through fear um, and discomfort. I guess, and and actually challenging myself constantly, knowing that I'm going to have to challenge myself. Whether that's going to speak to different people, um, you know, which is out of my comfort zone completely. Um, yeah. Uh, creating different bits of content and and actually putting mentality out there you know it's, it's a str- it can be a stressful thing but also um you, you can you can you can kind of go past those things that you're talking about where there might be an opposition or they might you might get ridiculed for it you know it's a constant thing but i guess that leads me on to a bit of a point where um i guess you've always you you might you you, you might have your own viewpoint in this damien but you've always got to challenge yourself in some sort of manner um and you can't just you can't just kind of sit easily in your comfort zone and 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 get on with it because you know it's it's a very it's a very daunting thing to do. But you also grow and you also surpass those those kind of things or those positions you were in where it was it was easy to do so. But you look back on it and you, with hindsight, you know you're better and stronger for doing those things. Hundred percent, Stevie. Yeah, I think. The- you know, there's a there's a lady that works in education at the minute. I mean, it's a very popular movement. Uh, it's late, it's, she's an educational psychologist called Carol Dweck. And she did a study with kids in uh, the States where she got one group of kids that were told, you're really talented, you're fantastic, you're great. And she gave them a series of tests. She got another group of kids that were told how that, that when you struggle, when you come up against opposition, it makes you smarter. And they were told about how your brain learns. And, and, and the basic message is that, that having difficulties makes you smarter. She then put them group of kids and gave them the same test. And what they basically found is the kids that were, that were made to understand that struggle makes you better, they call that a growth mindset. And those kids generally tend to outperform the kids that have got that fixed mindset that they've just been told they're hugely talented from the off. Because they learn that you're not always going to be successful. They understand that, you know, you're going to have downs as well as ups and they've got better resilience. They've got better ability to cope under pressure. And I can imagine, you know, like when you were coming through as a player, I'm sure that that there was kids that you'd have started out with that had bags of talent that were fantastically talented and were just told how good they were right from the off. And yet when they got older and older and they start coming up against better players they couldn't cope with the setbacks the difficulties because they had that kind of fixed mindset 
Whereas what you've demonstrated through your rugby career is you've got that growth mindset and what you've done is you've taken that same approach and applied it now to mentality as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that that that's a really a really good. Um, I guess it's a really good story or kind of contrast to to, to to different kind of mindsets there, and and it's something that I was I've been getting through your your kind of different books that you sent me that we're going to give away um, to to people listening and, and people that, that enjoy the podcast. Um, but I guess I saw a Victor E. Frankel quote in, in I think it was Liquid Thinking actually, um, and, I, oh, yeah. and I I read read the book and it, I think it's a brilliant book if anyone listening it's uh, Victor E. Frankel is a Holocaust survivor and I think he was a psychologist um, looking into right. was, the, yeah. the idea of meaning, wasn't he? And, and he got obviously put in that position and what I guess what a tragic way but you know what better way to kind of discover all, all this kind of ongoings with, with with what people actually need and what they need to strive for and um, yeah I, I mean I, I look back on, on what's that sorry Damien yeah sorry Steve I was going to say that Frankel's got a great story so you've summed it up brilliantly there that he was um he, he, he was in Auschwitz. He was an Auschwitz survivor and he was there for, uh, he was one of the camps longest serving prisoners. And he wrote a book about it, the book that you're describing, Man's Search for Meaning, where he, he reflected on the end of it and said, well, why did I survive? And the stats were that only one in every 28 people that went into Auschwitz ever came out of it alive. And his question was, well, why did I survive? And the other 27 that would have come in didn't. And he talks about that idea of, Choice. So logotherapy that derives from his work is around choice, which is what he, he, he understood that it was the ones that even when you were confronted with worst possible circumstances you can imagine, the choices that you made determined how you were likely to cope with it. And he chose to view Auschwitz like it was a medical exercise. So he said, well, people can't be this cruel to each other. So he chose to view it as a medical exercise and appointed himself almost as somebody that would give care and nourishment and support to those that were struggling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, I think it's an amazing book and I, I definitely recommend it. And you, you take a lot from it. I did take a lot from it. And, and, and the quote that, that I take from it is, um, I think it's all too easy to kind of, to worry about what you're going through and, and whatnot and, and how hard things are at times. But, um, I guess I know from, from the losing the semi-final on, on Saturday against Hull, um, that it's all part, it's all, all part and parcel. Um, you need the, the downs and, and the valleys and peaks to come together. But this quote actually, Victor E. Frankel wrote was, um, what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. Um, and, and I think he, in that book, he actually does mention that the people that kind of had something to, to get towards or something to, the, the prospect of seeing the family after they, they, they'd got out of the um, Auschwitz and, and, and all these different stuff, um, whether it's finishing a book or whether it's, uh, whether it's having a goal or a kind of task that they need to fulfil, they can, they can kind of cope with it better and they can uh, seem to... Um, struggle that bit easier and 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 have that choice that freedom of choice to, to prepare better and and i know that i was looking for your books damien actually and, and coming on to the the kind of the goal goal setting and, and how important that can be and um just a, a little thing that i'd never seen before which was brilliant which i saw was um 
the reticular activating system, um, which you do notice. I think there's yeah. a phrase in, in that. I mean, you, you'll be able to fill me in, but when you set a certain goal or when you set a kind of standard for yourself that, that you want to meet, different things will be popping up to you that, that need to pop up, if you like, and, and you'll subconsciously stop hanging around with people that you don't have time to do it because you need to achieve some different stuff and I thought it were great and you yeah, might yeah. want to fill 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 the listeners in on on that yeah well I mean a couple of points on that then Stevie so the stuff around Frankel's point about giving yourself a target a goal is like the best research I saw about it was some research around Chinese New Year and the reason Chinese New Year is relevant is because it happens at different times of the year so it's not like Christmas of the 25th of December every year And what they found is in the Chinese community, the death rate falls massively in the the two weeks leading up to Chinese New Year. But then it spikes massively in the two weeks after it. And the reason they think that's the case is that people will hang on. They will set themselves the target of, I want to get to New Year. So even if they're ill or they're poorly, it can almost be life enhancing. And then once that's taken away from them, that that sort of drive to get there is gone and therefore people can often it can be it can be life affirming in in uh, in other ways so we can see just how powerful having this sense of purpose or this target to aim for really can be i mean the stuff you talk about the reticular activating system basically it's it, it it's a part of our brain it sits just above the left ear uh, the left ear uh, the right earlobe sorry um um and what it basically does is it's like a filter. So it's almost like a bouncer in your brain. So your brain's constantly being bombarded with thousands and thousands of bits of data and information at any one time. So the way I'll often do it is I'll say to somebody, think about the feeling in your right foot at the moment. And everybody thinks about your right foot. And you say, well, where was that thought just before I asked you to do it? And the reason is it's not relevant. So you don't think about your right foot until I've just asked you to do it. So that shows you how your reticular activating system works. So I've given it a nudge and said, allow that thought into your head. And the reticular activating system opens the door and you suddenly start thinking about your right foot. So there's loads of different ways you can do it. You know, like the obvious examples I share with people is you say, you know, when you buy yourself a new car and then suddenly you notice loads of the same model and the same color of that car that you just bought on the road. (laughs) Now, the reason you've never noticed it before is they've all been there you've just been filtering it out. It's not relevant to your brain. But suddenly when something becomes important, it is. So you're very right about that idea of if you're focused on what you want and you're clear in terms of what it is, you will find opportunities start to emerge. So I'll give you a personal example. I remember uh, years ago, I, um, I was writing a book on leaders that were making change happen. And, um, I was in, um, I'd, I'd read an article about a guy called Bill Sweetenham, who was an Australian swimming coach, and we'd brought him over to the UK to head up British swimming. And I'd read an article about this guy, and I thought I would love to interview him. I bet he's got some fascinating stories to tell. And about a week later after I'd read the article, and I still had the article in my bag, I was up in Glasgow, and I was at the airport, and as I was looking for a seat uh, in the airport lounge, I heard an Australian accent dictating a letter, and I just caught the last two, the, the last line where this guy went, "Yours in sport, Bill." And when I looked round, it was Bill Sweetenham, the guy that I'd been thinking about, was sat in the same airport lounge 
dictating a letter. So it was a it was a textbook example of how the reticular activating system works that if I hadn't read it and thought about him, I would have missed it. And what happened was I, I, I went over and introduced myself to him and I showed him the article I had, told him what I was looking to do. And, you know, I, I, I struck up a friendship that still, uh, 10 years later, is still going strong with him from that day. He was incredibly helpful. So I'm just giving you that as an illustration to show that how the reticular activating system will get in information that you don't even know is out there. You'll see articles or interviews or stories that suddenly become more relevant when you're clear about what the information is that you're looking for. Do you um, do you think that's... So there's obviously the idea you, you'll be aware of it. Do you think that's the confusion between law of attraction and, and the reticular activating system? Because, you know, you hear all these things about law of attraction. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. Um, but obviously they've got quite a bit of a, a cross... Uh, a bit of a cross pattern, really, aren't they? You kind of you kind of aware of more yeah. different stuff, and if you kind of thinking and believing and stuff, surely you're gonna come across it more, and and like that's like you say, that bounce in your head's gonna make you more aware of it in in life. But I guess they kind of they kind of got a bit of a different, um, similar similar pattern to them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant question. I mean, I've, I've 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 never really thought about it, but now you say it, I can see that there's an awful lot of parallels between that idea that that you attract what you that you get what you, you attract what you want in your life. So I can see how the reticular activating system helps you identify those patterns or those people. So you use that lovely example about about the people that come into your life are the ones that should be there. You know, I like I say this to a lot of young players like uh, athletes that I work with where I'll say to them have a look at who's in your peer group and decide whether they're the right people for you you know like I remember uh, working and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this and I'll offer it I remember working with Sam Burgess years ago when he came through uh, Bradford and I remember Sam was a great example of uh, we had to encourage him to say, stop looking at your peer group that have come through at Bradford. Start looking at your peer group to be like the elite athletes that are playing out in the NRL or the guys in your dressing room. Like, remember Steve Menzies was there at the time. And it was, start hanging around with guys like him that have had a long, successful career and start copying hit, uh, you know, the, the habits that he gets into. And I know that Sam obviously you know, not with any encouragement from me, but he just did it anyway because he was that sort of smart switched on lad, you know, and he's gone on to have real success um, out in Australia. But that idea of start being clear of the kind of person that you want to be, you will start spotting examples of people that are already doing it that, in my experience, they're often really happy to share their knowledge and expertise themselves. Yeah, I guess uh, yeah, a, a lot a lot you can draw from that is being clear on the idea of of what you want to do and 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 where you want to be, I guess. And um there's a few things you mentioned there just just by merely being present with people that have been there and done it before or who have the same goal. I guess that's half of the half of the objective then to to kind of take what you need from them and, and to, to be all striving for that same goal. It's a lot easier to be striving for the same goal as, as other people and, and being in the same boat and, and gathering all that stuff. So it's a really great point. And um, 
I'd love to to dig into Damien. Um, you came and spoke. Yeah. I think it, it might be about four weeks ago, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, at, at our England meeting, and it definitely opened up even more awareness for me to to kind of see how how one thinks, you know, in, in different situations and 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 kind of different when they've got different prerogatives and and. And how to analyse really how you're thinking, whether that's playing on a rugby pitch and making decisions there, or whether that's just walking about town and um, going for a drink or whatnot. Um, yeah. So I'd love you to to just kind of give us a bit of a, uh, a background on that and and the yeah, work you've done, and, and it made a lot of sense to me, and, and kind of opens out some some ideas for for how people can think about how they think, I guess. Yeah, of course. Well, well, I mean, thanks for thanks for the kind feedback on it, Stevie, because. I really enjoyed it because I'd been lucky enough to work uh, on the coaching staff with the uh, with the England team uh, about ten years ago when um, my, uh, uh, my friend Tony Smith was the head coach. So I worked with Tony then, and then uh, um, Kevin Simfield and Jamie that are now on the on the staff, Jamie Peacock, had asked me if I'd come back and just share some of the experiences. So that was the context of which I came back in for the sessions that Wayne. Bennett's been organising just the get-togethers. And I suppose the main thing I wanted to talk about was what you just said there. It was almost thinking about thinking. So when you think about it in Donald, so I often ask people and say, what percentage of, like, if you think about having a smartphone or an iPhone, you say, what percentage of its functions do you, like, do you understand or, or use? And the reality is most people use about 5% of what that phone is capable of doing. And then you say to people, have you ever read the instruction manual? And they go, no, never have. So I think there's some parallels there for us as humans that it's like we do things and we don't ever really think about, are we tapping into the full potential what we've got? But then understanding a little bit about how the software, in this case, the brain works, I thought was just a useful way of coming and talking about it with the England players like yourself. So what we spoke about was a concept where just get them to understand how the brain works. We spoke about it in in three distinct areas, really. We spoke about, um, and I shared with what I know that the New Zealand, um, the All Blacks, the Rugby Union, uh, use predominantly. They use the same language. And, the, and this is derived from the work of a psychiatrist, a guy called Kerry Evans. And Kerry uses, a, it's a model that, been around since the 50s about the psychological brain divides it into three three parts so we spoke about redhead first of all which is very much the primitive part of the brain like the reptilian system and what i said is that that red-headed part of the brain is is it's got the same functions that every other animal has on the planet and therefore it's got three agendas that have to be addressed so the first agenda it gives you is it gives you a sex drive a desire to go and reproduce and to continue the life cycle the second agenda it gives you is we're pack animals. So we need to hunt in packs, which is part of the reason that, the, you know, you think about how religion does that. You think about how social media does it. We identify ourselves with groups and, and, and tribes. So from a sports team perspective, this is where you can't afford to have any cliques or divisions in the team. You need to all be see yourself as part of the same group. And we spoke about some of the techniques to do that. But the third one was it needs to keep you alive. So when it senses that there is a danger imminent, 
Now, whether that's you feel that somebody's going to pick on you or whether if you make a mistake, you're going to get hammered for it or, you know, a defeat is going to define who you are as a person using those sporting things. It, it basically triggers what we know as the freeze, flight or fight response. So it says to you, run away, hide or take it on. Yeah, and, uh, could direct. I just jump in on on that, Damien? No, just on it, on that last last point, um, which is to keep you alive. So that obviously, um, that that falls back on a lot of um, situations where where you're not actually going to die. If I'm right, is that is that kind of like hundred percent? Yeah, your ego, yeah, so, your yeah, e- so. like your ego's trying to keep you alive in in certain situations. That might be. Um, that being laughed at or making, like you say, making a mistake on the field, just not wanting yeah. to be um, outlined for that mistake. Yeah, 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 very much so. so. That's a really good point, Stevie. So it's not necessarily feeling that you are under that physical threat. It's the perception of it as much as the reality of it. So it can be that idea of getting beat. You know, if you've loaded that much pressure on somebody and you feel that getting beat is literally... A catastrophe it's the worst thing that's ever happened all things like that that still triggers that red-headed system to panic and say we're going to be in trouble here and the freeze flight or fight response the way that that looks like on a rugby field is you get people becoming reckless and sort of charging around trying to do everybody's job and they lose their discipline so that's where they'll often give away penalties or or they'll get themselves sent off or make stupid decisions the, free, the freeze response is where you get players that just almost shrink and go into their shell, and they're easy to play against because you just run over them. Or the flight responses, the way I often talk about it in, with coaches is, it's loser's limp, where they start getting little injuries and niggles and they start pulling up lame, and they basically look for excuses to get out of the action. So they're the typical responses that you would see um, on a rugby field. I mean, they take a lots of different perspectives outside of sport. See, so you, you know, like if you're in a business where your absence rate starts creeping up, there's a flight response. You know, think about it when you were a kid at school and you used to go in the classroom for a lesson you didn't like and you're allowed to sit wherever you wanted. You go and sit as far back in the classroom as you can. Yeah. That's a flight response. When people are in your company and they've got the smartphones out and they flicking through that information rather than giving you their attention, that's a flight response. You know, I often speak to groups where, like leaders will say to me, you know, we do Q&A sessions and nobody asks anything. There's a freeze response for you. The silence is actually feedback that you haven't created an environment where they feel safe enough to speak up. Or the other example is where you get aggression or cynicism or rudeness. They're often fight responses. You know what? And they can be subtle. Sometimes you get people telling you how much money they've got or how big their job is or how important they are. They're all fight responses because they're trying to establish a pecking order that I'm more important than you. I'm I'm higher in the in the pecking order than what you are. So any evidence of those behaviours can culture. You know, the way I say is that some teams might perform okay with that, but it's a broken clock idea. You know, it's an accident rather than design. You write twice a day, but you've not been right deliberately. Yeah. So what we were talking about with the players, as you as you remember, was we were just getting them to identify uh, that everybody's individual responses 
when they come under pressure because we all have some default patterns of behavior. So I know, for example, that if I get put into a situation where I feel really uncomfortable, my instinct is, first of all, to try and flee. So I'll often look to get out. If I can't get out, I become quite passive. And then finally, if, I, if that doesn't work, then I become belligerent and aggressive. So I know that if there was a preferred pattern of behavior for me, it's flight, freeze, and then fight. But we all have different patterns. So what we're looking for was getting people to, like getting the players to identify their own pattern, but then equally to work, to have that idea we were saying about having a buddy, somebody that recognizes your behavior as well, that can help you out when you get in a moment of crisis, someone that can just come and that like help you or somebody that you feel comfortable and safe enough to turn to to ask for help that they can sort of make sure that they get your thinking patterns back in line with what the team needs you to do yeah and and so what kind of um i'm maybe jumping the gun a bit here um, no not at all man kind of the the idea to, to bring a kind of sense of calm and um, composure does that does that come into the the um, the primitive section of the brain does that does that or is that kind of learned behavior I know that you speak about that in just in just a little while but does 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 yeah. the, the kind of do you train the response to come from the the kind of reptilian side of the brain the primitive side of the brain or does that does that well, come after? I mean, the phrase that we used on, on that was, if you remember, that I told you the example of um, many years ago, I went out to Detroit, uh, I was doing a book on a boxer called Thomas Hearns, and I went to Detroit um, to go and interview him, but interview his coach, a guy called Emmanuel Stewart. And I went into, um, and it's a famous gym called the Cronk Gym, it's produced a lot of champions, but it's in a particularly poor part of Detroit, and the sort of social deprivation was really quite frightening. And I found myself really quite out of my depth being there. You know, I, did, I was sharing the example that I think it was the only white guy I saw in a five-mile radius when I went in there. And, you know, the gangs, the prostitution, the drugs was all very, very prevalent. And I, and what occurred to me was this same gym had also produced over 30 world champions and it was when it was around. And when I interviewed the coach, a guy called Emmanuel Stewart, around this, he used a lovely phrase where I said, how do you do what you do? And the first thing he said to me was, he said, how do you feel when you came here this morning? And I tried to bluff it out. I said, oh, I was really excited to meet you. You know, it's a real privilege to be here. And he said, that's very nice. Now tell me the truth. And he blindsided me. And, and then I opened up and said, I'm quite frightened. I feel overawed. I feel out of my depth. And he said, right, brilliant. Now we can work together. And when I got to know him, asked him about this, he used this phrase that I think sums up the answer to your question beautifully. He said, you need to contain before you explain. And what he meant by that is you need to contain the redhead. That if you're feeling frightened or intimidated or overwhelmed or overawed, you can't think clearly about what you need to do. And nobody can explain what you need to do. It's almost like when you're in that angry state, somebody telling you to calm down is the worst bit of advice they can give you. You need to calm down yourself and then work out what triggered the angry response and then work out how to avoid it next time. And that's very much what Emmanuel Stewart advises, but that's what, to answer your question is, that we need to, that, that you can't solve the problem when you're in that state. It's only when you choose to reflect afterwards and say, why did I get like that? What caused it? What were the issues? How would I do that differently next time? And that's the bit of, like, the, the fluidity in our thinking that we require. 
So there's traditionally four things that we need to st- uh, that your redheaded state needs. So we need to feel that we've got a sense of control over what we're in. We need to feel that we're safe. We're psychologically safe. We need to feel that we have some value to offer. And then the fourth thing is we need to feel that we're working together, that we have a sense of belonging. And if you've got those four things in place, you give yourself a fighting chance of stopping those um, destructive, dysfunctional behaviours that the redhead we just described and allowing yourself to think clearly and calmly in any pressured situation. Yeah, so I guess a lot of it um, is, I guess it's for, a lot of it's for experience, isn't it, and, and self-reflection and knowing if, if that redhead, is, redhead has taken over um, and not being able to stop it. You've got to reflect on it and, and kind of... Um, and that's a key point, Stevie, but that's a key point. It's the reflection. So, because some people will say to me, oh, is it about experience? I say, well, I know lots of really dumb old people and I know lots of really smart young people. So it's not necessarily about age or experience. It's about having that willingness to come back and reflect and think about it. It's that it's that phrase we used at the start of our conversation. It's about thinking about thinking, you know, where where you'll reflect and go, did I handle that as well as I would have wanted to? Is there anything I would have done differently next time? Is there any advice I would have given myself or should I have? And asking yourself those questions and having other people that care enough about you that you can ask and know that they'll give you an honest answer is critical to this because then it all becomes part of you store that information away in what we call the, uh, the white part of the brain. It's effectively, it's a number of parts. It's like the parietal lobe, it's the hippocampus and things like that where you store all that information and knowledge there that means if you were faced with the same situation next time, you've got access to more resources that maybe would change the way that you behave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that, that makes perfect sense, and um, I think it's it's good it's good to have that mapped out. And, and that phrase, thinking about thinking, I guess I came up with that accidentally, but it's it's definitely what it is, and um, it almost comes into well, it definitely is the the kind of conscious thinking and conscious awareness, and um, I guess that's something that I try to ch- change in in my life. I look back to two three years ago, and I might have been going through life kind of going through a script and, and living through life almost as if it's like a car journey, you know, when you drive drive to a, you know, yeah. drive to work or whatever and you'll get to the place that you get to and you think, how do I even get here? And, and you've kind of got no recollection of what you're doing because you're almost an autopilot. Um, a lot of that still happens, yeah. but um, I'm trying to incorporate a lot of stuff, I guess, Damien, what, with what you're talking about, which is is that conscious recollection and, 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 and actions really. And... and um, yeah, so that's that's just a point with me personally on on my point, and and I'll I'll let you go on to 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 your next bit really and, and further explain it, mate. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that example that you the, the you know that you gave about driving on autopilot and things like that. I mean, stuff like that. I mean, it's estimated we'll spend about ninety five percent of our life doing things on autopilot, and and that's actually useful because it stops you procrastinating too much. Like, there's a lovely example that I don't know if you saw when uh, last summer when David Cameron stood down as Prime Minister, he shared two pieces of advice that Barack Obama had given him when he took over as Prime Minister in 2010. And the two pieces of advice were around thinking about thinking. 
So the first bit of advice he gave him was, he said, strip your wardrobe down and only ever have black or blue suits in your wardrobe. So he said, so when you get changed in the morning, he said, you're going to have to make some big decisions as prime minister of a country. So don't waste that thinking time worried about what colour clothes you're going to wear. Just make it simple on yourself. And the other bit of advice he gave him was to give himself at least an hour a day just to turn your phone off and go somewhere quiet just to have a bit of thinking time to allow yourself to reflect on things. And I think that that advice, whilst it's like the President of America offering it, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, there's something in it for all of us that, you know, sometimes we just need to get rid of the minutiae, not spend our time thinking about irrelevant stuff, but actually give ourselves time to think about the big things you know, on, 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 you know, on that can apply to if it's rugby, it might be a certain key moment in a game that you want to think about how you'll do it better next time. If it's away from sport, it might just be a relationship that you want to improve on, or it might be, uh, you know, something in work that you need to get right. And I think just having that ability to reflect is critical. Yeah, there's a lot you know, in that. Because yeah. Go on, mate. But, 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 but then this is like the example that, that we use with the England boys, Stevie, where... So that question I asked where I said, if you were to divide up your best performance and think about how much of it was down to the hard skills, like your ability to tackle and your fitness and your, and your strength, and how much of it was down to the soft skills, such as your thinking ability, and divide up as a proportion what your best performance can be attributed to. When we were in that room, you know, most of the boys in the room, like the first ones that put their hand up were the ones that said, when they got to about 60%, said about 60% of my performance is about the, like my thinking skills. You know, a larger proportion, it was about 70% said it was. It was. There was a few of the boys that were saying that around 80% of it was. So my question was, well, how much time do you spend working on that versus going in the gym and just lifting weights or doing the physical stuff? And the reality is that even if you're saying that 70% of your best performance is down to your thinking skills and yet we do less than 5% of our training time, why would we expect to get any better? And I think that's as true for life as it is for sport. We have to invest time in this reflection and learning some of these techniques yeah yeah definitely and um going back to that that point and and obviously i've that's that's what i kind of thought a year and a half ago i've kind of got to take hold of it and um make an improvement i guess in 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 all that that kind of those techniques the stuff that you talk a lot about in your books and um and also the the mental battle of, of rugby and, and what it takes to be a rugby player it's it's quite it's, there's quite a lot in there and um, is we talked about the advice that, that David Cameron got um, is there any routines that that I know like morning routines are very done thing and, and Tim Ferriss talks about it a lot and and stuff like that is yeah. there any routines that 
um, before we get back to to the kind of the mapping out of, of how people operate and and whatnot. Yeah. Um, any routines that, that you recommend? That might be a morning one, or that might be certain different things, like you just mentioned there, knowing what to pick to wear, so that you're ready to go and and you kind of you kind of ready to operate then straight away without using all that kind of dilly dying about in the morning. Because I know we've all been there and we've we've wondered what we're going to do for breakfast, and then by the time we know it, it's 11 a.m. and we need to get out of house and and go out and live. And um, I just wondered if you, what your viewpoint is in that, and if you've got any ideas for it. Yeah, I, I mean. There's lots of ways in which you, you can almost use autopilot uh, for your advantage. So, like, if it was a case of you wanted to exercise in the morning, put like put your kit out before you go to bed. You know, so don't spend your morning sort of trying to get your kit out once you wake up because when you wake up, you're tired and your redhead will convince you that leave it today, doesn't matter, it's not important. And it will find lots of excuses to do that. Whereas if you've already got your kit out and it's next to your bed, so the moment you get up, you know, I, like I know some guys, and these are boxers that I've worked with, that I've actually practiced getting out of bed in the morning. But if they're setting their alarm for, say, half past four in the morning to go and do their road work, they will actually practice the routine of getting out of bed as if it's half past four in the morning. Because the more you practice it, the more your brain goes, all oh, right, okay, this is fine. So you're not then wrestling with the redhead at half past four in the morning when it happens. You just get into that habit of sitting straight up, turning around, putting your feet on the floor and just walking. So you, you almost don't give your redhead time to think about it. You just get into that routine. So yeah. I think about, so you can't do that for everything because that's daft, I understand it. But think about for the critical moments that can derail you. Just go through it and break it down and almost use autopilot to make it easier on yourself. Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a really good point. Um, that's a really good point. And, and I think I think back to um, four years ago now. Yeah, four years ago now, when 19, when I was suffering with an injury and um, a lot of that was going on. Uh, you know, you'd be waking up early to go to do rehab and rehab something that I'd been doing a lot of my career and, and stuff like that. Um, and there'd almost be a lot of, not so much angst, but just stress for getting up to do that same thing again. And there'd be a lot of negative self-talk, which is something that, yeah. that I'd love to speak to you about. Um, but nowadays, after doing more different morning routines and, and doing different things where I know what I'm doing in the morning, I know the exact steps of, of what I'm going to do and then go to do at training. Um, it's a lot easier to, to kind of digest in the morning. Um, you know, it's different stuff like not looking at your phone and, and kind of just going through the day where it's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more seamless um, to manage and, and to present yourself better in the day. You've got so much more energy. You've got more stuff to do that, that you can do with, you know, the, your best ability, really. Um, so that's that's a really great point. And the idea of um, practicing, at, uh, uh, practicing the getting up out of bed, I can definitely understand that because they're getting up to, to do some really hard work. Um, at a silly time so the idea of, of practicing it isn't actually that daft it's, it's quite it's really smart actually in, in a way and um, you can almost tuck all that stuff to the side that that you might feel or you might think which which can either be good or bad mostly bad when you're getting up at half past four in the morning um, 
but you know that's that's very powerful and 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 I think there's there's some good good weight behind that. Yeah, very much. I mean, that again, you know, like you think about other ways in which you can do it. Um, you know, I've worked with some people where like just get them to do like easy things, so sort of like change your mobile phone, um, like the number. So, so if there's somebody, I'll give you an example. I had a mate of mine that was going through a difficult time separating from his wife and um whenever they spoke to each other on the phone it got nasty quite uh, quite quickly so what we did with him was i said how do you want to behave when you speak to her and he sat down and went i want to be calm i want to be polite but i want to be confident and stand my ground so what we did was we said right let's go through your routine of answering the phone and i know this sounds daft but we said what do you do when the phone rings and he said well i check who's like i check who it is I said, right. I said, um, so what we said is, well, that's your moment to do something different. So what he did was, when his, his ex-wife's name appeared on the phone, underneath it, he just went to the trouble of writing the words calm, confident, and polite. So whenever the phone rang and he saw his wife's name, he also gave himself a reminder of what he wanted to behave like, not what he was going to do, what he, or, or not what he felt like, what he wanted to do. So... He then had, he gave himself a moment of choice that said, am I prepared to invest the time in being polite, calm and confident? And if the answer was no, if he didn't feel like it, he said, don't answer the phone then, just send her a text instead. Do you see what I mean? But it's almost like break the pattern of behaviour and, and just give yourself a bit of a free ride using the autopilot to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's almost like just breaking up that, that subconscious pattern Um of of what he's 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 already set out to do in his head and and kind of just putting an alert in there in it to I bring him bring him back conscious to to act and that's a really good way yeah. to, to to think about it. Yeah, I mean we did it. I remember years ago I, w- I was lucky enough. I, w- I worked with uh, I said to you I mates with Tony Smith and I worked with Tony um, when he was, when he went to Warrington Wolves for a few years and we had a lad there who. Um, when we got to the first ever final, uh, the Challenge Cup final, we were playing uh, Huddersfield, and uh, one of the lads that we played, he'd, he'd been at the club a long time, and he he had a real fear that he was going to get himself injured before the final, and he, he got this irrational thought in his head that in the build-up to the final, he was going to get injured and he was going to miss out on what was the biggest day of his career today. And what we had to do was break down the whole thing and break this pattern of thinking for him, where what we even did was, because he, he was coming on as an interchange player, what we did was in the dressing room, we got um, the tape that he'd wrapped around his um, his um, his, his wrists and we'd, and we'd wrote on it, breathe. So literally when he was stood on the touchline at Wembley, he gave himself a reminder that the, fir- that the first thing he had to do was to take three deep breaths. And I know this sounds ridiculous to somebody listening, but one of the first things you'll do when you get nervous is your breathing gets shallow. And when your breathing gets shallow, you start to get butterflies. And when you get butterflies, you convince yourself that you're nervous or that there's something to worry about it. But it's actually often just a case of your your breathing patterns. So we'd had to break down. We were doing this for lots of different things in the build-up to it. But even up to the moment that you got on the field, it was, you know how to play. So you just need to get out of your own way. So we were giving him the instructions that when he stood there, before he ran on the field, he had to take three deep breaths, 
right down into his diaphragm before he entered the field of play. And we were breaking down his patterns of behaviour, even to that level. That was just a case of, because you know, to get him out there and just deliver the best that he could. Yeah, I mean, that definitely works. And, and I've done a lot of stuff um, looking at breathing, you know, whether that's actually just meditation, just basic fact of bringing your awareness back to your breath or... Um, yeah. A bit, you know, a bit of Wim Hof uh, breathing technique, um, which has actually been on the the podcast before you, Damien, um, which were which were good fun. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it is brilliant, and um, I love what you said there. Getting, you know, you can play. You're just getting in the way of yourself. In, in effect, you know, a lot of the thinking and and thoughts that can pop up in in, in consciousness can get in the way of of what you know you can actually do. Um, so it's just knowing that, I guess. I guess it's just knowing that um, <laughs> that you can actually get in your own way and 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 to your own detriment, in in, in fact. But um, mate, just I'd love to um, um, outline some more of that stuff that that we that we spoke about as well. We got a bit sidetracked there, didn't we, by going yeah, off on a tangent? Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's. So, so we spoke about the red head. We spoke about the white head, and then the final bit we spoke about was the blue head. So this is basically the prefrontal cortex. The so, so the whitehead, the whitehead was is all the learned stuff, wasn't it? That's all like kind of all your processes learned. So that might be yeah, all your knowledge, everything that goes in there. Yeah, and then and yeah. then the red head, uh, and and then the blue head is the is the, is basically the thinking part of your brain. So this is unique to us as humans, but the thinking part of your brain effectively has got two agendas. The first agenda is you're driven by a desire for logic and common sense. So the obvious example is this is how conspiracy theorists emerge from a human. So when random events happen, we make up stories. So in organisations or in teams, this is where gossip happens. And it's often a sign that people are not being communicated with well enough or clearly enough, so they make up stories instead. But the second agenda we have is we've got what we'll refer to as a society agenda. And this is where we want to get along with each other we want to help each other. We want to sort of enhance each other's experience for working together. And this is how, if you think about it from a, from an evolutionary perspective, this is how humans learn to trade and to barter and develop civilizations rather than keep fighting each other. So the blue head stuff is around what really contains the essence of great teamwork. So the red head gives you the motivation and strength and power and all of that. The whitehead gives you the knowledge, but then the bluehead says, how do you use that effectively for the benefit of a team and an organisation? So the session that we did with the England boys was saying about how do we access this information effectively? And part of what the get-togethers, as I understand them, that Wayne Bennett's put in place are about are just actually breaking down those barriers that when you come together as as, you know, whether it's Leeds and Wigan and things like that, getting rid of those and identifying the and coming up with the identity that in this room we're all England, we're all working together to do that. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really great just to to kind of have that the outline or um, you know that kind of map of of how we do operate and and. Like you say, there's a lot of good stuff that can come from the red ad, redhead, and, and that's aggression in it, and that's kind of the stuff which which you need um, to to go on and 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 have that power to do it, and and it all links very nicely. I'm sure when you're working on it, you, you kind of think, 
how amazing the, the brain is what we've got on and how incredible it is it actually works just so in sync and and stuff like that it's, it is quite incredible um and, and i'd love to i mean i touched on it a, a bit briefly before but um just the ego like how does that interact with um how what you work in 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 daily life i know you've you've worked with with some incredible people like um richard branson you know you, you say alex ferguson and and all these kind of successful people across yeah. your job um is there a sense of, of of thinking about the management of ego and and what the downfalls are, what what the positives are, and and where does that link into what you do? Yeah, I mean, I mean that again. It's a brilliant question. That I think having like a healthy sense of of who you are and what you bring to it is is something that that is common to all successful people. Like that they've got a great sense of self awareness that they know what they're good at, but equally they know where their areas of deficiency are. So I think, I think that's really important. What I would say though, is that, that what I found is a, is the most common trait of all these successful people is, is, is humility as well. So they've all, that they, I've never met anyone that claims that they know all the answers. They've got the willingness to at least listen. Now that doesn't mean the, that they're gullible, what I'd always say is they've always got a lot of them have got really highly attuned bullshit detectors built in as well. So they'll listen and they'll question, you know, and they don't necessarily take it for granted, but they'll at least do the, do the courtesy of at least hearing you out. And I think that's a big part of any successful leader or sports, sports person or, or, or individual is that, is that they, is that they've got that self-awareness to know what they're good at and what their strengths are, but equally they're prepared to learn and have the humility to see that maybe somebody else has got a perspective that can enhance them, you know. And and I found that, I mean, I think you've obviously got it, and I'm not just saying this because we're chatting now, but I think just the example of your own biography, your own story, tells you that you've got that willingness to learn, and that comes back to what I said to you at the start of this, I think what you're doing is really inspiring because if people can see you're doing it and you're successful already in in, in, in the one part of your life that they'll be aware of in terms of the rugby league, but you're prepared to say, I think I can get better as a person, I think there's stuff I can learn. I think your example is huge that because you, cause you, you're a real-life example of the humility that we're describing, Stevie. That's that's a lovely thing to say, Damien. Damien, uh, appreciate that, mate. Um, I'll I'll keep on with it and and keep trying to crack it. Um, I don't know when I will crack enlightenment, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's, mate, it's, it's just a journey. The whole thing is a journey. And I think and I, and I think as we said, it you know the difference you can make. I, I think it. I think what what you're doing does make a difference. And I think don't from your point of view, don't underestimate that. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, mate, that's that's brilliant. Um, and I guess just to to end on a last question, um, just I'd, I'd love to ask you, like, if you could kind of just round up some of the work you've done. It's it's an hard thing to to do, but I, I know you spoke that you have worked with Barcelona Football Club and and obviously Richard Branson and 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 all these people you've worked with. Um, what are those kind of things you've learned 
working with these guys and is any kind of stories or things that you, that you can that we can take away as listeners today to that we can kind of put on put in our heads and, and know from from what you've done yeah i mean I've, I've just finished a book that comes out next year that looks at um that looks at barcelona and how they and how guardiola sort of developed the culture there so it's very much around the culture rather than about the football um but that um that is a is a good example because that contains a lot of the things that i've seen in the time i think Thinking about thinking, I think if there's three things, thinking about thinking is a big part, just investing time and understanding what we do and thinking about how we do it better. So that example I said to you about, think about the mobile phone. If we're only using 5% of its capacity, but we never read the instruction manual, how do we ever know what else we can do? The second thing I'd say is about um, the emotional intelligence just invest in time. I've yet to meet an elite leader or an, or going into an elite culture that doesn't have high levels of emotional intelligence. And what I mean by that is the idea of they contain and then explain. So it's not about the alpha people walking around like 10 men being rude and snide and abrasive. It's about having people that are prepared to admit they don't know, you know, and, it, and, and to help others out and things like that. And then the third thing that I've seen is just the courage to go for it. If there's one underrated quality, it's about courage. And that isn't courage to stand up and fight, and it's not courage to necessarily take on all comers. Sometimes it's just having the courage to do something, just to take one step in the direction. The courage to do something when nobody else is doing it. The courage to stand apart, even when people are taking the piss out of you. The, the courage to at least try and see if you can do something different. I think they're the three things, the thinking about thinking, the emotional intelligence, and then the courage to actually have a go. That's awesome, mate. That is awesome. I'd just love to thank you. It's It's been incredible to have you on this chat, Damien. Um, oh, and it's I, a real privilege to come on, Stevie. Thank you, you. Yeah, I think a lot of people take a lot from it, mate, and um, from where you've been and, and what you've been doing now. It's amazing. So thank you a lot, mate. No, thank you. It's a privilege. And, and, uh, and, you know, I hope it does make a difference to uh, to the brilliant work that you're already doing. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed the podcast with Damien. Uh, I got so much out of it. I'm sure you guys did as well, and, and it offers quite a different avenue to go down to look at thinking what you're doing in daily life um how you're operating and and it's all brilliant and i think it's probably worth just letting you know that you can find damien on twitter at liquid thinker and he's obviously done so much work with england he's done so many guest speaking spots and he's got so many massive testimonials so have a look into what he does and if you're a big um, advocate of mentality and, and what we're doing, um, go across to mentalitymagazine.com and subscribe. It really helps us knowing who's interested, who wants to, to be the first to be notified. Um, so guys, it's been brilliant. Please leave a review. A five-star one would be lovely um, on the iTunes and let other people know. Guys, thank you for listening. It is so, so much appreciated. Um, it really is. And till the next time, peace.